Yeah, Father, as uh, Paul has already prayed to you, our hearts this morning often, for many of us, are, are cold to you. And we he- hear the words of the psalmist and the excitement of the psalmist and, and it misses us. And we don't want it to miss us. We want to be a people who respond like the psalmist responds in view of who you are. And so, Lord, by your spirit, would you be present with us? Would you cause us to respond in praise, 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 and praise? To your glory, for your name's sake, we pray these things. Amen. Well, a good morning. I want to add my welcome to Heath's welcome. My name's Jake. I'm part of the team here at Christ City. I want to start this morning with a question, and the question is a simple one. What do you fear? What are you afraid of? I've spoken at length from this very pulpit about some of my own fears. Uh, fear of failure, spiders, uh, fear of the unknown, right? Especially in COVID. But what if I told you this morning that there is a fear that I never, ever, ever, ever want to lose? A fear that I am holding fiercely onto. Would that sound strange to you? Throughout our Bibles, and I really do mean throughout, we find this very peculiar and strange phrase. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. For example, we're told in places like Proverbs 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're told in Exodus that it was only the Egyptians who feared the Lord, who brought their livestock and servants in from the field, who saved them from the deadly plague of hail. In Deuteronomy 6, the law is given to Israel for one purpose, one idea, one main goal— that Israel would fear the Lord, that they would fear him. What a strange phrase, especially today, the fear of the Lord is. And we encountered it again this morning, did we not? Mariko read for us in Psalm 47, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. This phrase, the fear of the Lord, seems like a vestige, a remnant of an Old Testament religion, does it not? The religion of Jesus, however, we believe and we teach. The religion of the New Testament is is much more modern. It doesn't speak like this, does it? Does it? We may be surprised to learn that in Acts 9, the church there is walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and we like that. Comfort of the Holy Spirit, that sounds very New Testament, we're down with that. But also we read in Acts 9.31, they're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fear of the Lord. For Paul, it was the fear of the Lord that drove his evangelism. In Colossians, it is the fear of the Lord that is to control our relationships to one another. It's the fear of the Lord. And all of this puts us in a bit of a pickle this morning, doesn't it? Especially, and maybe you can relate to this, if we've seen or witnessed the fear of the Lord employed to justify abuse, quoted by a power-hungry leader, 
or simply used in the development of a cold, fearful, servile picture of who God is. Psalm 47 forces us to reckon with the fear of the Lord. To decide today, once and for all, if the fear of the Lord is good news or bad news. Something to be celebrated or avoided. But more than that, Psalm 47 will say, if the fear of the Lord is good news, we are commanded to worship with all of our bodies. Dare I say, even in a charismatic way. So here's our outline this morning. If you're taking notes and you want to follow along, here's how we'll move through Psalm 47. Very simply, God most high. God most high. Second, God most gracious. And then thirdly and finally, in view of these first two points, to God we sing. So God most high, God most gracious, and then to God we sing. I want you to open your Bibles. If you have a physical Bible, open it now to Psalm 47. If you don't have one and you want one, grab one at the back table. We have extras for you. Psalm 47, verses 2, 7, 8, and 9. I want to just read these verses for us. For the Lord... The Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Now look at verse 7. For God is the king of all the earth. Now verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. In the second half of verse 9. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Without a doubt. Don't miss this. I can't miss this. You can't miss this. Psalm 47 invites us into a glorious, transcendent, cosmic vision of God. God who is over all, above all, sitting on his holy throne. He is God most high. God most high. And specifically, we're asked in this psalm to consider a few implications of his ruling and reigning over us this morning. First, and I hope you notice this, pervasive in this psalm is this idea that God is king, king over all, over all. See, he's not just the local deity of an obscure ancient Near Eastern people. He is king over all. Look once more. In verse 2, we find this title. Did you see it? For the Lord, the Most High, we find that ascribed to God. Now this title, God Most High, or the Lord Most High, is not a title we find ascribed to God first by Abraham, or by Daniel, or by Jacob, or or Moses, or or someone else. It's actually a title we first find ascribed to God by a king uh, from the nations. In Genesis 14, in Genesis 14, which I know you thought I was going to go there this morning, we find this strange man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. We're having a lot of kids in this church right now, and if you want to add Melchizedek to your kid name list, right? Just, Just saying, it could be a good one. And Melchizedek, we read, is the king of Salem, and he's described as the priest of God Most High. More than that, when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, listen to the language Melchizedek uses. He says this, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. El Elyon, God most high, is a name first ascribed to God by the nations. It only makes sense then that our psalm continues to say, God is the king of all the earth. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. And in verse 9, for the shields of the earth belong to God. If God is indeed God most high, his kingship is cosmic. It's cosmic. It's total. It extends to every person, every place, every time, and every circumstance. So Christ said, stop with me for a moment and consider that we've come this morning to encounter and to worship El Elyon, God most high, who sits on the throne, high and above, subduing enemies, matchless in power, matchless in authority. You know, in verse 9, we encounter this strange phrase. Look at your Bibles with me. This strange phrase, the shields of the earth belong to God. And some commentators believe that what the psalmist really means is the kings of the earth belong to God. But since God most high is so much above, so much better, so so much greater than earthly rulers, the psalmist dare not mention any other kings in the psalm. And so they are simply shields. Their armies comprised of swords and shields all ultimately under El Elyon's authority, all ultimately under his kingship. It is a staggering picture, one that I cannot do justice to this morning. And I'm reminded of Isaiah, who when he encountered God seated on his throne, cried out in despair. Or I'm reminded of John, And John in Revelation 4, when he saw that beautiful, terrifying, glorious vision of this heavenly throne room with the the lesser thrones below, I'm reminded of how John fell on his face. No wonder God is to be feared. Anything else would be illogical, ignorant, not thinking straightly. But can I suggest to us this morning and to you this morning that this fear... Fear of the transcendent, holy other, all-powerful, El Elyon, is only, listen, Christ, this is so important, half, half of what it means to fear the Lord. Now, while this is a good start, if we do not complete our picture, if we do not fill out this vision of the fear of the Lord, we are no better off than when we started. Let me show you. There is, I think, a a sinful fear of the Lord in the Bible. A sinful fear of the Lord. A fear that remains in the terror that Isaiah and John initially experienced. And to show you this, I want to go to 2 Kings chapter 17. And as you're well aware, in 2 Kings chapter 17, we find Assyria, the great powerful nation, destroying the northern tribes of Israel. And Assyria moves into the Israelite territory and has judgment on the Assyrians. What does the Lord do? Does anybody know? It's crazy. He sends lions in their midst. He sends lions in their midst. 
And the Assyrians are rightly terrified of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He's, he's sending lions to kill us, to destroy us. And the Assyrians decide that this God is to be feared. And so they offer sacrifices to him. They technically fear him. But fear in 2 Kings 17 only means terrified, only means afraid, only means we acknowledge that he is powerful and perhaps capricious and we should uh, satiate him somehow. It does not lead to meaningful worship. And so at the end of 2 Kings chapter 17, this is what we read. It'll be up on the screen behind me. So these nations, they feared the Lord, but listen, and also served their carved images. They feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. The sinful fear of the Lord is equivalent to sheer terror. Sheer terror. Sheer, unfiltered terror. And no doubt, this, when it comes to God, is where some of us remain this morning. God, we think, is to be feared like you and I fear the, the monster under our bed. Omnipresent, dangerous, and altogether not on our side. N nefarious. This sinful fear of God leads us to believe that God helps those who help themselves that we're better off relating to God at arm's length and causes us to dread eternity with him as, if not more than, eternity apart from him. Eternity with him is just as frightful of a prospect. We must begin with this transcendent view of who God is, but we also must keep on moving, keep going, complete the picture. I think it is true what the old Puritan Thomas Manton said. See, Satan laboreth, I love that old English, to represent God by halves. Satan laboreth, would have us believe and have you believe and have me believe that God was only this transcendent, holy other, fearful. But is God only most high or is he something more? See, we see now in Psalm 47 that God most high is also God most gracious. Look at verses 3, 4, and 9 with me. He subdued people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. In verse 9, the princes of the people gather together as the people of the God of Abraham. See, in every other religion, this is true, God asks, acts favorably towards us because we did something that deserves that favorable behavior. God act, acts well towards us because we are good or have done something good or praiseworthy. And in almost every modern way of thinking, we deserve what is good because we are good. But Christianity says something wholly unique. Wholly unique. Listen, in view of El Elyon, as Isaiah and John portrayed for us, lying prostrate on the ground, we deserve nothing. 
Nothing. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And he is undone in in the view of who God is. He's undone. We deserve judgment. But though we deserve to be judged, we receive all that is good. Not because we did something good. No, Christianity says because God most high is also the God who is most gracious, most compassionate, most loving. Notice in these verses we've read already, who who acts? Who acts in these verses? Who's taking the initiative? Who's moving the ball forward? Look at your Bibles. It's he, El Elyon, who subdues people under us. It is he, El Elyon, who chose our heritage for us. And it is he, El Elyon, who gathers the nations as the people of the God of Abraham. He's doing everything. All of it. It's all him. All the time. Now just historically speaking... The order in which these gracious acts are listed for us fit nicely with the narrative of Israel. What happened for Israel? You might know Israel, as they entered the land promised to them, they found that it was occupied by people who did not worship Yahweh. And as you read the book of Joshua, you find that's not Israel who wins those battles. This small, obscure nation, fresh out of Egyptian captivity. No, it's Yahweh who wins the battles for them. That second phrase, he chose our heritage for us, could be understood as a people or the land. But I think it's right to understand it in both contexts. He chose Israel to inhabit a place, to make a physical land, a physical kingdom for them in the midst of their enemies. But here's where things get unbelievable in the story of Israel, which, by the way, is our story as well. The good news story of Israel was always intended to be a good news story for the nations as well. See, the God who rules over the nations calls all nations to himself, all peoples, all peoples. In one of the clearest Old Testament signposts that Israel's blessing was not to be kept to themselves, but was to move out to bless the nations We read, and the psalmist writes, the princes of the people gather. As what? Every other ancient Near Eastern text would say something like, the princes of the people gather as subjects, as slaves to Yahweh. At least as second-class citizens in God's kingdom. But no, it says the princes of the people gather. The nations come and they gather. Listen, Christ City, as the people of the God of Abraham. No distinction. As the people of the God of Abraham. This movement from gracious election to gracious victory to gracious invitation and inclusion of all the nations, this is seen most clearly in Jesus. In Jesus in Jesus. See, the other half of the story, which Satan would have us forget, is that El Elyon becomes Emmanuel. God Most High becomes God with us, with me and you 
his church. See, the sending of his son was not out of character for him. He was not the God who was once to be feared and now is to be loved. No, understood rightly and not sinfully, the fear of the Lord is what leads us to love him. In Jeremiah 33, the Lord is telling his people through the prophet Jeremiah of the blessings he is going to pour out on them in Christ, in the coming Messiah. And listen to the relationship between these blessings and the fear of the Lord. It will shock you. Listen. The Lord says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. Listen, in view of this, the nations, they shall fear and tremble because, not in spite of, because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Here we find fear and trembling because of God's goodness. Not opposed, but because of God's goodness. I could give you example after example after example of fear being connected to and birthed from God's goodness. How does this happen? I could summarize it by quoting the old English Puritan William Gouge. He summarizes true fear perfectly when he writes that true godly fear, again, put up with the old, old English with me, arises from faith in the mercy and goodness of God. True godly fear arises from faith in the mercy and goodness of God. For when the heart of man hath once felt a sweet taste of God's goodness and found that in his favor only happiness consisteth, it is stricken with such inward awe and reverence. See, this fear is not like monster under our bed fear. It's more like Grand Canyon fear. Awe, reverence. Still powerful, still dangerous, still above and beyond us, yet we are moved to awe and reverence and worship because we come to learn that El Elyon is Emmanuel, God with us. And the one we fear becomes the one we love. Our problem today, just generally speaking, in, in, in our broader culture, is that we choose either fear or love when it comes to God. Either fear or love, one or the other. We bifurcate the two. We either reject God on the basis that he will, or the fear that he will expose us, ask us to change, reveal our sinfulness, or... We remove the fear altogether, don't we? And what remains is a God stripped of all transcendence. A God who looks like us and sounds like us and, spoiler alert, is us, is me, is you. But in Jesus, we don't need to make a choice between fear and love. We fear God because in love he has subdued our enemies of death, Satan, and sin under his son Jesus. We fear God because he has chosen us in Christ, prepared a home for us in Christ. We fear God 
Because in Jesus, there is now nothing, and isn't this a word for our time? There is now nothing that is to divide his people. No ethnicity, no socioeconomic standing, nothing. It is precisely because God has acted towards us in Christ graciously that we ought to fear him, stand in awe of him, fall to our knees before him, or as the psalmist will say, sing to him, sing to him. God most high is God most gracious. And so last point, to God we sing. Look at verses 1, 5, and 6 of Psalm 47. I want you to hear these words, Christ City. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. If fearing God is truly what I've just explained it to be, then this response only makes sense. This only makes sense. And so this morning, to a group of largely non-charismatic, mildly expressive, too educated and well-read to show emotion urbanites, I want us to see these commands for what they are. Commands. Commands to sing, 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 sing. Commands to clap. Commands to shout loud. Commands to use instruments. And to do all of this with understanding. The second half of verse 7 says, sing praises with a psalm. In Hebrew, it's this word masculine. And other translations to simply translate this part, sing praises with a well-written song. In other words, the vision of worship we see here is, yes, be joyful. Cross-armed people, be joyful. Be excited, be exuberant. Clap and sing and dance and give praises to God and do it all, not in some mindless trance. Don't bark like dogs. Don't do weird things. Do it all with understanding. This, this passage is closely related to the passage in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul urges the church in Corinth, sing with your mind and your soul. With your body be expressive, but don't disengage your mind. It's a vision of worship that includes both mind and body. And if I'm being frank, let me just tell us something that we already know, right? We already know this, but I don't say it anyways. We are very good at the mind part, right? We're very good at that. We're, we're thoughtful people. We like our doctrine and our teaching. That's good. We are very bad at the body part. We're very good at the mind part. We're very bad at the body part. And that's a problem. And I wanted to say this very clearly. That's a problem, not just in like a preferential way. That's a problem because the Bible talks about the person not as being body over here and mind over here, but as being one singular entity of body and mind, closely related to one another. The body pushes the mind and the mind pushing the body, and they're relating all the time one to another. And modern psychology supports this. We are body and mind, inseparable, one and the same. And so as we close, 
I want to say three very practical things about singing and worshiping on Sunday morning as a church. And the first is this. The first is this. As I just said, we reject uh, the false dichotomy that you either engage the mind or you engage the heart. We reject the thinking that you're either a truth church, a Bible church, or a worship church and a spirit church. We reject that. Our commitment is to sing true and glorious things about God. That's Paul's commitment. That's our commitment to sing true and glorious things about God. True and glorious things that move us to worshipful, exuberant response. Second thing is this. Christ City, if we want to grow in our worship, and we can grow in our worship, if we want to grow in our worship on Sunday morning, here's the hard truth. It's going to involve your bodies. It's going to mean that maybe maybe this is not the best way to come to El Elyon. The Lord has made our physical bodies in such a way that the loves and fears and desires and emotions that we experience are manifested in our physical actions. And so, for example, I'm watching the Olympics right now. And when I'm watching the Olympics and Canada's going for gold, maybe I'll be realistic, and America is going for gold, um, I just, I just become an American for the Olympics because it's much funner that way. Steph and Lydia, USA, USA, USA. When we're watching the Olympics, what happens? We're on the edge of our couch, right? We're, we're jumping up. We're shouting at the TV. I've seen some of you do this. I, I know this. What do we do? Our bodies are expressing our inner desires, our hopes, our dreams. Please, right? Our bodies are doing what our hearts are longing for. And then suddenly, from Saturday night to Sunday morning, something happens. And we put on our cocoon, and the nimble, couch-jumping body of Saturday night has somehow magically transformed into the stiff body of Sunday morning. Right? It's, it's, it's like reverse metamorphosis, whatever butterflies do. Right? They go from butterflies to sort of, you know, back to the chrysalis. I, I don't, I didn't plan that analogy ahead of time. Don't check, don't fact check that. What's happening when this happens? When Saturday night leads to Sunday morning like it typically does for all of us. And, and by the way, like, I, I'm not saying this is just you and I'm like up front like dancing. Like, like, you guys know this is me too. This is a word for me as much as it's a word for you. But what's happening? I think the first thing we have to ask is, is do we love those things that we bodily respond to more than we love the Lord? I think that's just a good first diagnostic question. Does an Olympic gold excite our heart more than the fear of the Lord? Does news, good news, which should move us to jump, which should move us to shout, excite us more than the reality, the picture in Psalm 47 of who the Lord is. That's just a diagnostic question to leave you with. It's going to leave that with you. The second thing that's probably happening is this. When we watch the Olympics, 
Now, from history and from our own experience, we have permission, like from the collective society, to respond to success in a certain way. But when we come to a gathering on Sunday and we all have our arms crossed during worship, sociologically, psychologically, it is very difficult to be the outlier in the back who is getting their dance on. Almost impossible. And this is why, you know this, charismatics hang out with other charismatics and cross-armed people hang out with other cross-armed people and never the two shall meet, right? Let me say this just so clearly and I want you to hear me here. Please hear me. We find in scripture great permission for all the things I'm about to say. So if you want to come at me, come at me. But we find great permission in scripture for all these things. If you want to dance, dance. If you want to clap, clap. And don't worry if anybody's going to join you or not. It might just be you. If you want to shout, shout. If you want to take a flag and go up there and not distract anyone, take a flag, go up there and do your thing. But don't be surprised. And some of you just got so uncomfortable. I could feel it. Oh. I'm just saying, don't be surprised if standing crossed arm on Sunday morning, worshiping the Lord doesn't do it for you. Doesn't move you to worship. Doesn't excite your heart for El Elyon, the God most high, who is God most gracious. Don't be surprised. We are body and mind. Not just mind, not just body. And if you have questions about whether a response is appropriate or not, I want to talk to you. I want to give you instruction. I want to help you worship in the way the Lord has gifted you, encouraged you by the Spirit to do so. Last thing. Notice, and we can't miss this, that the singing in Psalm 47 is done together. It's done together. God is in the singular in Psalm 47 and his church, we, us, his people, always in the plural. Always in the plural. There is nothing like, and I experienced it this morning and I'm so thankful. There is nothing like singing together as the people of God. Amen? Come on, amen? Amen. There is nothing like singing together as the people of God. Someone sent me this quote this week from Basil the Great, one of our early church theologians. He wrote this, a psalm forms friendships, unites those separated, conciliates those at enmity. Who indeed can so consider as an enemy him with whom he has uttered the same prayer to God? So that psalmody, bringing about choral singing, Paul, working on that, choral singing, right? If you're interested, a little side project of mine, a bond, as it were, toward unity and joining people into a harmonious union of one choir. It produces also the greatest of blessings, love. When we sing together, when we sing to El Elyon, who's become Emmanuel together, it produces love, love for him and love for one another, knitting and keeping his church together. Let me take this opportunity to say to you who are joining us on the live stream right now, you who are joining us with no current plans 
to return to in-person gatherings, let me encourage you, begin today to make plans to return to an in-person gathering. We're thankful for the technology, thankful for, for Neil and the team who's made this possible, deeply, deeply thankful for it. But, but I'll tell you something that we're going to elaborate on next week in an announcement. The live stream has an expiry date. It will not be going forever. Because we believe there is nothing like the blessing of being the embodied people of God, serving communion to one another, singing together, sitting together, physically together under the preached word. There is nothing like it. And as thankful as we are for technology, especially in this past season, it has limits and boundaries. And we want to draw those as a church, as leaders, as elders. So as we end, instead of praying, I want to invite you to stand with me now. I want to invite you to join me in singing the doxology. I want to invite you to respond in the fear of the Lord. Look upon his glorious nature, Christ City. Consider his gracious acts towards you. Consider the work of his son, Jesus, dying on the cross for your sins, that you might worship him clean today, free today, in right relationship with him. Jerry, I'm going to ask you to turn off my mic for this because nobody wants to hear that. But I'm going to lead us out. Let's sing. Let's sing.